Welcome to AI Dialogues, a podcast series brought to you by Educational Initiatives, an organization working towards creating a world where children everywhere are learning with understanding. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, academicians, policy makers, and education leaders to delve deeper into the most urgent and most important questions on solving for quality and equity in education. This episode is hosted by Pranav Kothari. In this episode, we have with us Saurav Banerjee. Saurav is the country director of Room to Read, an organization that seeks to transform the lives of millions of children in low-income communities by focusing on literacy and gender equality in education. India is naturally multilingual, I would say. So there would be cases like, say for example, Jodhpur in Rajasthan. The school language is Hindi, but children there invariably would speak Marwari. And Marwari and Hindi are not entirely the same. If you go to even the southern part, southwestern part, where you have the tribal areas of like Sirohi, there the child speaks a very different language, which is a Garase language, which is a tribal language. The market language there is Marwari and the school language there is Hindi. So the child has to be transitioned really from Garasia to Marwari to Hindi. And, and it's not that one language to another, it's always and most often it's a question of the child already speaking all these three languages in various measures. India, a land of 500 languages and dialects, is home to millions of such children. With international and national studies reporting low learning outcomes, how do we, as a country, plan on having our students achieve foundational literacy? Saurav gives us a bird's eye view on the evolution of the Indian education system and its governance landscape, the issue of multi-language literacy in India, and insights on various scale-up pathways for an NGO. On to Pranav now. You spent almost 20 years working in this sector um, as a donor, as someone within the government, as someone working with the government, you know, part of national agencies, international agencies. Can you, I mean, give us a bird's eye view of, you know, how has this sector evolved over the last two decades? Well, that's, that's kind of an interesting question because you, uh, you're right that it's like, it's been about 25 years and I've seen it from all those angles of, an, uh, of a donor, of an implementer of the government. Uh, if you look at evolution, I would, I would say that, um, I mean, if I try to look at the last 25 years that I've been working in the sector, it's, it's, sometimes it feels like it's a case of one step forward, two step backwards. So, I mean, there have been a lot of initiatives taken either by government or by NGOs, which are individually, they have been very brilliant initiatives. But somehow they have worked at cross purposes. So you'll have cases of governments coming and um, and kind of reversing programs done by other governments or NGOs working at cross purposes. So if you look at the overall landscape, um, Except for the access part, which definitely has improved. I mean, there's much more children now in school and first-generation learners in schools. But on the quality side, uh, that debate still is unresolved. Like, uh, I remember like the kind of issues that we used to discuss in 94, 95 when DPP was launched. 
is almost similar to the issues that we talk about even today, basic quality issues, equity issues. So somewhere we, I think we have not really made a lot of headway on that. And I think there are a couple of uh, reasons for that. One of course is, I guess, uh, this whole thing about, um, you know, the, the education governance. I think that's been a big uh, draw, I would say, a challenge. And the kind of reform that you would have expected in education governance over the years, that has not happened. Uh, and the political influence in this whole governance system of education is pretty strong. I mean, it starts from hiring of people, uh, of postings, of uh, the kind of curriculum you have, the kind of training programs that you do, the way you do training programs. So all of that somehow has not happened. And probably, I think, as I reflect back, I think a lot of it probably would have to do with the whole issue about the political will to really make a change. Mm. And I mean, uh, I don't see that really in the last 20 years. Wow. There has been several governments, but the whole issue of politicians wanting to have a strong education system, mm. whatever party it may be, mm. that somehow is missing. I mean, and, and the kind of debate that you would expect within political circles mm. on education, that probably doesn't happen. So, so education reform has largely been led by the bureaucracy, which I think has its limited uh, reach. Unless there's a political ownership of the whole thing, it probably won't reach that level. So, I mean, things like you, so this, this whole push now for skill development, mm. which is, which, I mean, it's no doubt important thing. Mm. Skill development and the lack of skills is, is something which is critical and people are working on it. But the political push that you see for mm. skill development, nobody is ever questioning the fact that why are you doing skill development? It's, it's basically, essentially, you are doing certain things in addition. Right. Ideally, your education system should have produced these skills. Your education system has not been doing that and then you invest in additionally to build those skills. So instead of investing so much on skill development, why not invest that money on fixing the education system? So these kind of political discussions, I, I think these are more political discussions right. and they don't happen. As a result, this whole education governance has not really improved over time. So that's probably because the you know young adults today who don't have jobs are in some ways more uh, the audience that the political parties want to focus on, right? right? So is it because of that that skilling is getting more attention? It is. I mean, it is. It's so. I mean, that's what I'm saying. The political parties, political leaders, they're they're thinking of the short term. Yeah. So because those are like you can kind of immediately see the benefits of those interventions and therefore focus on those interventions which give you quick benefits. The whole thing about education being a long-term thing and, and I think somehow politicians have not got the thing that if you, have, if you can really create a strong education system, it's a huge political legacy yes. one can build. But somehow nobody is thinking that long-term. Everybody is thinking short-term and therefore do things which are very short term which can give you benefits immediately and show people that you've done something. The longer term effect of that is not being taken care of and as a result the larger systemic changes that you require somehow doesn't happen. How does Room to Read operate? I mean what is the theory of change? What is the organization currently doing to improve children's ability to read? So I guess um, 
The theory of change at a basic level is very simple. It's like we believe, it stems from the belief that world change starts with educated children. And uh, so education, we think, solves a lot of the problems that the world is facing, including poverty, equity, conflict and others. So the need for education is paramount. The earlier you start uh, education, the better. Illiteracy is a big, is a big barrier. And so our focus has been to make children literate in the first place, which is the foundation in learning is what you call it. At the same time, we realize that uh, illiteracy and poverty is again quite related. So it kind of illiteracy leads to an intergenerational cycle of poverty. So we feel that investing in girls' education is therefore very important because then if, if you can actually educate the girl, you can start breaking the cycle of poverty. So we have determined that we would focus on illiteracy and girls' education. So the idea is you create, you have more children who are literate, you have more girls who are educated, and therefore these together forms empowered citizens which lead to change. So that's, that's the broad theory of change. Given that you know, Room to Read is an international organization with uh, many different countries, uh, operations, uh, many different countries where you're doing the fundraising, how does India fit into that strategy? I mean, how is Room to Read India uh, operating within a larger umbrella organization? So Room to Read as an organization, again, we are now in about 14 countries. Now, and since we're an organization who are focused on two particular areas of education, which is girls' education and early grade literacy, uh, it makes us easier that way because the larger mandate is the same across all the countries, that we are going to work only in these two areas. Uh, we are not really diverting and going anywhere the fund is that way. So we have always been focused on these two areas. So there's a larger, um, what would I say, a program design which is followed across all the countries. Okay. So how you, uh, how you would deal with students, how you will do train teachers on early grade reading, or what kind of inputs you will give to girls in a girls' education program is constant across all the countries. What varies is the local context. Obviously, the girls in, in India would have a separate, separate set of challenges mm -hmm. as compared to, say, Vietnam. So you'll have to kind of uh, contextualize your program, uh, country specific, so, and that is allowed. So, that's, uh, so every country within the larger umbrella mm. takes the uh, global program design and then contextualizes it to the country context. Like India, uh, for example, in literacy, has a huge issue about home language, school language things, which may not be there in many other countries. So this whole challenge of transitioning a child so the issue is not really training a child in his first language, it's actually second language because the first language is always different from the school language. So that transition thing. So you're, for example, you're talking about a child who is of Bengali heritage, is speaking Bengali at home, right? but uh, happens to be living in Delhi and has to go to a Hindi medium school. Is that the example you're talking about? There are, very, there are actually varieties of these things. I mean, India is naturally multilingual, I would say. So there would be cases like, say, for example, if I take example of, say, Jodhpur in Rajasthan, the school language is Hindi. That's the state language of Rajasthan. But children there, invariably would speak Marwari. And Marwari and Hindi are not entirely the same. So there's a transition that a child has to do from Marwari to Hindi. If you go to even the southern part, southwestern part, where you have the tribal areas of like Sirohi, there the child speaks a very different language, which is a Garase language, which is a tribal language. 
the market language that is Marwadi and the school language that is Hindi. So the child has to be transitioned really from Garasia to Marwadi to Hindi. And, and it's not that one language to another, it's always and most often it's a question of the child already speaking all these three languages in various measures. So it's not that you are teaching her or an entirely new language. The language is there in the environment. But you just have to kind of um, teach them how to read and write that language. That's, That's one level of uh, complicacy. The other level is what you're talking about. So in urban areas like in Delhi and Bombay, you will find uh, children coming from various parts of the country. So even someone coming from Tamil Nadu or from Karnataka or from West Bengal and they all have to now learn Hindi or English or so that's the other level of complexity. So, so all these complexities are very unique to India which you would probably not find except for the other countries that we work in. Only Laos has this kind of a complexity but other countries are more, more or less monolingual. So again the global design then has to be contextualized to take care of these kind of challenges. So I'm really intrigued by this child, you know, who has, is speaking Gharase at home, market, Marwadi, you know, school, Hindi. Yeah. And then there is the whole allure of English. Oh, yes. I mean, that's an additional <laughs> complexity, which is, which is also a foreign language. Yeah. Because at some level, uh, a Garasia or a Marwadi or Hindi or a Bengali or any Indian languages would still follow the Akshara script. So you have a certain science of how you kind of do the akshara things of your vowels and consonants and stuff like that. But English is a very different ballgame altogether. So, so obviously that's a very different complexity. We have really not even gone to that extent. Like till, uh, till now all our programs have been in the local language. We have not tried English as, in, uh, as, a, as a foreign language. And there's a lot of demand from most governments to try ask us to go into English. We ourselves are not very confident that we can handle English the way that we handle our local languages. So how do you handle this tension? Because I hear you say on one hand there's demand for English, yeah. but on the pedagogical side it's the vernacular language. And so how do you... you know, so pedagogically we all think that vernacular is where the child should start their education. In English you can always transition at a later date. If, you're, if, you're, if you know the basic science of learning a language, you can always sit have a new language later on. So we, we do argue that with, with various state governments on, on the need to push English to a later date and start with the home language or the school or, or a vernacular language. But again, I would say as I, you, as I was talking about in the beginning about the whole political uh, consensus around English and not English. So, so there's, there are market forces, there are political forces where, where which do not always follow a sound pedagogic principle. So there's always this thing about English coming in. And so the best that we could do is what we have offered governments is, uh, is that, so we have a strong library component. So we said that we can, we can see, we can supply you English books so that the child can at least get a bit accustomed to what English is. But it's probably too premature for us to start teaching English because that's a very different ballgame. There are some countries like Japan, right, where uh, the Japanese language mm -hmm. has enough economic opportunities right. that you may never having to ever learn English, right. right? But in a country like India, where the economic opportunities available right. to only native language speakers, uh, you know, may it's not limited. be sufficient. It's limited. It's limited. Yeah. So. In that scenario, does, you know, India, is India obligated to 
infuse English early into the curriculum, even if it doesn't make the right pedagogic sense? I think English, I think it's difficult to shy away from English. At some point of time, you're right that market uh, would demand that you have English. And the way globalization is happening, the kind of opportunities that you have globally, it makes sense for ch children to even go and learn English. What our concern is to start English at a very early age because I think the your first uh, start of language reading writing should always be at the language that one is comfortable with. That's one part of the thing. The second thing is we I think we don't even have the right infrastructure for teaching English to a large extent. One because See, reading, writing cannot happen unless you have simultaneously listening and speaking, speaking happening with it. These are all correlated. So if you have an environment where the child is not speaking English, the child is not listening to English, you suddenly start teaching him to read and write English, it's just not going to work. And then you have this whole thing of not adequate teachers, the teachers themselves are not going to it. So there's a lot of other things to be resolved before you even talk about English. So that's about the illustrious uh, past, Saurav. Uh, what's the future like? What is the five, ten year dream? What are you looking forward to the most? So I think what we have, we're now focusing for, so, so we have been, it's been about 12 years that we have been working, more than 12 years about, uh, we started in 2003, so it's about 15 years that we are working here. Till about 2012, I guess we were, we were very, uh, closed, we are very inward looking. So we were trying to develop the model, both in terms of our girls' education program and literacy. So the model itself evolved over time. So we started off with a library program, then we brought in instruction and we kind of changed our instruction design a couple of times to figure out what makes more sense. Uh, to the point now where we are pretty confident that we have a model that works. We have uh, evaluated them and assessed them rigorously to say that uh, the model works in any kind of situations. We have tried them in various situations and found that it's working. I think the way forward now is basically we also realize that this uh, closed uh, intervention in a few schools here and few schools there, I mean even a hundred schools or 500 schools doesn't really make any difference in the whole landscape of India where you're talking about a million schools. So I guess what we're going now, what we're trying to do is, uh, is looking at scale. That's been the uh, predominant discussion that we're having within the organization for the last two, three years. We have been looking at various researches around scale, uh, what Brookings has done, what MSI has done. And we have tried to develop a kind of a model for scaling up, so which, which, we, which, we, which we call it the I do, you do, you do, we do, we do model which is basically first you demonstrate what is happening, you create the evidence, then you work with the government very closely to build up the institutional system to scale up things. And when, it, when you say build up institutional system, it would mean things like, uh, say for example in our case, uh, in the literacy program, you work with the government to see that the instruction design is aligned to the curriculum. Or the training models are one that goes into government training programs or the materials are one that the government can actually replicate. So create those systems so that the government can replicate and that's what you call the we do phase where we and the government work together. Right. 
before you let it off to the government to scale it themselves, which we call the you-do phase, where we, we expect that our involvement will be only marginal to give the technical assistance, that's it. So this model, we have again started implementing that. So we have started with uh, Chhattisgarh and Uttarakhand, two states where we have got uh, pretty good success in a sense that uh, in, in both the states where we moved from the IDU model to a WIDU model, we have been able to kind of bring down the cost by one-fifth, yet the impact remained the same. The impact was actually better in the WIDU model, which was counterintuitive, but uh, when we kind of analyzed it, we figured out that it made sense because what was happening in those, in those districts where we were working with the government was there was a large ownership of the government to kind of take that forward. Uh, unlike in, in the other cases where we do in 100 schools maybe, but there are 1,000 other schools where something else is happening and so the teachers are confused and all of that. So I think that that's where we want to go. So the, the we do thing is we want, we are discussing with um, governments to can have, have this model applied to more and more districts before the government takes it out from themselves. So that, that's, I guess, the way forward. In the next five years, I think we see ourselves doing more of these collaborative programs with government uh, across various states. So would you say that when working with the government, uh, you know, one of the things you have seen is that when it's collaborative, when there's greater ownership, when it's sort of in some way census yeah. uh, applying to all schools, yeah. Uh, it's not that your results are getting compromised. In fact, they have taken the best of what you have to offer, they've done an iteration on that right. and deployed something that is right. more relevant, more contextualized, more useful on the right. ground. Right. And it's interesting because what we have also done a bit of research on, on various scale-up pathways that have been tried in India because unfortunately if you look at the history of India, not many programs, led, NGO programs have actually scaled up. And what we found was there are two kinds of scale-up pathways that we could figure out. One is where the NGO itself has expanded. So from 20 schools, we moved to 20,000 schools and then 2 lakh schools. We found that doesn't work because a non-profit by its very nature is not configured to kind of scale that way. So the moment you scale yourselves up, you lose the control that you have. You lose the intensity of the work. So that doesn't work. The other, other pathway of scale-up has been where, where government would have taken your idea and just scaled it up. So that again has not worked because in most cases it's, the, it's someone in the government, whether it's the minister or the secretary who has just liked your idea and said, Ki, we'll do it across the entire state. And it doesn't work that way because there's no ownership created at the teacher level. The teacher thinks it is for him, it's still a program coming from top and there's no ownership there. So this we do model helped in that way because we engaged with the government at various levels of the government with, during a longer period. So it was almost a period of one year of engagement where we were, we were talking to diets, we were talking to SCRT, we were talking to the teachers, the, the messaging had uh, was designed properly, what is the message that the, the, the project director would give or what is the message that a block officer would give and teacher would give. So all those things have to be kind of tied up really to see that the ownership and the messaging happens correctly. So what you, and what you want to do is you want the teacher to know that it is a government program. It's not a room to reads program. 
because the moment he sees it's a room to read program, he knows that two years down the line, more room to read won't be there. So I have no real stake to follow what right. is being talked. So to make that a government program, you really have to build in all the government uh, stakeholders into that process. And that process takes long. But once you have that, then the results are assured. And you mentioned about how the government should listen, mm. but listen to the right people and the right organizations, right? How does one determine as to what is genuine, what is fly-by-night, right. what has depth, you know, what is based on research, and what just looks snazzy? I mean, if you were in the government's shoes, like, you know, how would you decide and what advice would you give them? I mean, I understand it's difficult, but I guess that you need to kind of set up certain systems. So, so one thing is, of course, measurement. So, so every organization who is implementing a program, what are they measuring and what are they showing as the outcomes? That's very critical. Uh, and outcomes, I would say, at the child level, not really at the... So there, there would be organizations and there was a time when a lot of organizations were doing only teacher training, a lot of teacher training happening, but then ultimately, ultimately when the teacher goes back to the school, it's a very different challenge that they face. So, so, so actually looking at those, uh, the contribution of each of the organizations, and I think every organization has its own uh, strong points. So you cannot work with one organization and expect that organization to advise you on everything. So, you, and, and I think that's kind of understood that every organization has a strength. So you select organizations based on their strengths and ask them to contribute that portion of, of that. You mentioned that student learning outcomes are important, right? But the general belief is that unless teachers are trained, yeah. you know, how would that trickle down into student learning outcomes? But you said there's an issue that teachers face when they go back. So if right. you could explain. So I think the biggest problem with the teacher training, and teacher training is, is a double-edged sword. So if you have teacher training, teacher not trained, then that's a problem. If you have teachers going for training all the time, that's also a problem. So I think what has not happened really, and this is across the states if you see, and across policies, across things, we have not emphasized enough on the pre-service teacher training. Ideally, that should have been your focus because that's where the teachers are getting trained. Again, similar to the skill thing that I talked about. You're creating, you're, you're taking teachers to a system which is defunct. Then you place them on the schools. Then you additionally invest on them to build their skills, which, is, which makes no sense. I mean, you, you should rather invest at the time when the teachers are being trained. So, Adequate emphasis on pre-service teacher training is something which has not happened. Once the teacher is in the school, I think the focus should be more on providing the teacher on-site academic support rather than a lot of classroom-based training, which doesn't happen, work because the challenges in every school is very, very different. Sir, I hear you clearly on the need for higher quality of pre-service training, the need for teachers to practice in the classroom and get feedback on the practices. Yeah. But this itself requires a higher degree of capacity of the right set of trainers, of the right set of educators for yeah. the educators. Where will this capacity come from? Well, you have to kind of develop that, definitely. Like, uh, so for example, for in-service, coaching is a very, uh, very high set of skills. I mean, you, you, you can't expect the current set of people that we see in the system to be really good coaches. Many times it's not possible. 
So obviously you have to, uh, you have to work towards those very systematically, that's one part of it. But the second part is many times it's not always a capacity issue, it's again boils down to a larger governance issue. So the point is if you have BRCs and CRCs, I'm taking those as examples, they were, they were cadres created to provide academic support. But then you created such a system that they left, all that they were left doing was collect data. And, and they became in, in some way, you know, uh, bosses to the teachers. And they would, they would not really do the things that was expected of them. But why is that happening? Because your education governance was weak, you didn't have the accountability uh, systems which you would have required from them to happen. So it's not only, a, uh, the capacity is an issue, I agree, but then also to, to create those right kind of accountability structures which would, which would demand accountability even for a teacher education institution. If they are teaching, training teachers, there has to be some way of measuring what they're training. I mean, is the teacher gaining any knowledge after, at the end of the course? We currently don't have those kind of systems. What is the, how are you changing teachers' attitudes? How are you changing their practices? Do you go and, to go and see whether what you have taught in the teacher, is she being applying that in the field? So we just don't have those systems in place to kind of uh, build on those accountability on the whole teacher. But sort of like, I mean, how will this accountability come through, right? I mean, we talked about the political will. We, even when the government tried to sort of measure the impact of the teacher training institutes, the pre-service, there was this big uprising, there was this big pushback from the owners of the teacher training institutes, right? So, I mean, is, it, is, is all hope lost? I mean, are we no, going to get I, anywhere then? So, I guess, I mean, I don't think hope is lost. I mean, you, you have to keep trying, I guess. As I said, I mean, at one level, you, you might hope that the political system comes up and they kind of start demanding some of these things, which, which I strongly believe is one of, the, one of the things that has still now been lacking. And this, and this can make a difference if the politicians come up and start demanding uh, this kind of accountability. The other thing is, of course, on how you, um, how you design many of these programs. So, uh, so say for example, when you are doing a large scale teacher training, can you use technology for that matter? Uh, many concepts are much easier explained in a technological mode than doing a face-to-face -face teacher training where you waste a lot of resources to bring the teacher out of the school, set him in a center for five days and bore him to death and yet doesn't understand anything. So, so also uh, innovative ways of how to kind of deliver content to the teachers is one way of kind of easing out some of the challenges. I, I, I would still say the challenges would remain in terms of the larger governance issues and accountability issues, but at least you can have a way of delivering the content to the best possible manner. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing some pearls of wisdom. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, thanks a lot. Thank thanks you a lot, sir. It's yeah. a pleasure. Yes, likewise. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and if you like this podcast, do make sure to subscribe to us. You can also check out our entire video series as well on youtube.com slash eivideos.